Chapter Three of Hushed Up by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three, The Clergyman from Hampshire. What was the meaning of it all? Why had that tall, mysterious stranger watched so intently? I looked across at him, but he did not budge, even though detected. In a flash all the strange warnings of Sylvia Pennington crowded upon my mind. I stood facing the man as he lurked there in the shadow, determined that he should reveal his face. Those curious words of the mysterious girl had placed me upon my mettle. Who were the unknown enemies of mine who were conspiring against me? Should I take her advice and leave Gardoni, or should I remain on my guard and hand them over to the police at first sign of attack? The silent watcher did not move. He stood back there in the darkness, motionless as a statue, while I remained full in the light of the moon, which had now come forth, causing the lake and mountains to look almost fairy-like. In order to impress upon him the fact that I was in no hurry, I lit a cigarette and seated myself upon the low wall of the terrace, softly whistling an air of the Café Chantant. The night was now glorious, the mountain crests showing white in the moonlight. Who was this man, I wondered? I regretted that we had not discovered his presence before Sylvia had left. She would, no doubt, have recognized him, and told me the reason of his watchfulness. At last, I suppose, I must have tired him out, for suddenly he hastened from his hiding-place, and, creeping beneath the shadow of the hotel, succeeded in reaching the door through which Sylvia had passed. As he entered, the light from the lounge within gave me a swift glance of his features. He was a thin, grey-faced, rather sad-looking man, dressed in black, but to my surprise I noticed that his collar was that of an English clergyman. This struck me as most remarkable. Clergymen are not usually persons to be feared. I smiled to myself, for, after all, was it not quite possible that the reverend gentleman had found himself within earshot of us and had been too embarrassed to show himself at once? What sinister motive could such a man possess? I looked around the great lounge with its many tables and great palms, but it was empty. He had passed through and ascended in the lift to his room. Inquiry of the night porter revealed that the man's name was the Reverend Edmund Shuttleworth and that he came from Andover in England. He had arrived at six o'clock that evening and was only remaining the night, having expressed his intention of going on to Riva on the morrow. So, laughing at my fears, fears which had been aroused by that strange warning of Sylvia's, I ascended to my room. I did not leave next morning as my fair-faced little friend had suggested, neither did Pennington return. About eleven o'clock I strolled forth into the warm sunshine on the terrace, and there, to my surprise, saw Sylvia sitting upon one of the seats, with the cream sunshade over her head, a book in her lap, while by her side lounged the mysterious watcher of the night before, the English clergyman, Mr. Shuttleworth of Andover. Neither noticed me. He was speaking to her slowly and earnestly, she listening attentively to his words. I saw that she sighed deeply, her fine eyes cast upon the ground. 
It all seemed as though he were reproaching her with something, for she was silent, in an attitude almost of penitence. Now that I obtained a full view of the reverend gentleman's features in full daylight, they seemed less mysterious, less sinister than in the half-light of midnight. He looked a grave, earnest, sober-looking man with that slight affectation of the church which one finds more in the rural districts than in cities, for the black clerical straw hat and the clerical draw seem always to go together. It is strange that the village curate is always more affected in his speech than the popular preacher of the West End, and the country vicar's wife is even more exclusive in her tea and tennis acquaintances than the wife of the Lord Bishop himself. For a few moments I watched unseen. I rather liked the appearance of the Reverend Edmund Shuttleworth, whoever he might be. He had the look of an honest, open, God-fearing man. Yet why was he in such earnest consultation with the mysterious Sylvia? With his forefinger he was touching the palm of his left hand, apparently to emphasize his words, while she looked pale, even frightened. She was listening without comment, without protest, while I stood watching them from behind. Many other visitors were idling about the terrace, reading letters or newspapers, or chatting or flirting, the usual morning occupations of a fashionable lakeside hotel far removed from the strenuous turmoil of the business or social world. Suddenly she objected to some words which he uttered, objected strongly, with rapid interruption and quick protest. But he laid his hand quietly upon her arm and seemed to convince her of the truth or justice of his words. Then as she turned she recognized me, and I raised my hat politely in passing. Shuttleworth's eyes met mine, and he stared at me. But I passed on in pretense that I had not recognized him as the watcher of the previous night. I idled about the terrace and the little landing stage till noon, when the steamer for Riva came up from Danzano, and Shuttleworth, taking leave of Sylvia, boarded the little craft with his two kit-bags, and waved her farewell as the vessel drew away, making a wide wake upon the glassy surface of the deep blue waters. When he had gone I crossed to her and spoke. She looked inexpressibly charming in her white cotton gown and neat straw sailor hat with black velvet band. There was nothing ostentatious about her dress, but it was always well cut and fitted her to perfection. She possessed a style and elegance all her own. "'Ah, Mr. Biddulph!' she exclaimed reproachfully. "'Why have you not heeded my words last night? Why have you not left? Go!' go before it is too late she urged looking straight into my face with those wonderful eyes of hers but i don't understand you miss pennington i replied why should i leave here what danger threatens me a grave one a very grave one she said in a low hoarse whisper if you value your life you should get away from this place who are these enemies of mine i demanded you surely should tell me so that I can take precautions against them. Your only precaution lies in flight, she said. But will you not tell me what is intended? If there is a conspiracy against me, is it not your duty, as a friend, to reveal it? Did I not tell you last night that I am not your friend, that our friendship is forbidden? I don't understand you, I said. As far as I know, I haven't an enemy in the world. Why should I fear the unknown? "'Ah, will you not take heed of what I have told you?' she cried in desperation. "'Leave here. Return to England. 
hide yourself anywhere for a time until the danger passes i have no fear of this mysterious danger miss pennington i said if these secret enemies of mine attack me then i am perfectly ready and able to defend myself but they will not attack openly they will strike at a moment when you least expect it and strike with accuracy and deadly effect last night after you had left me i found a man standing in the shadow watching us i said he was the clergyman whom i saw sitting with you just now who is he mr shuttleworth an old friend of mine in england an intimate friend of my father's to him i owe very much i had no idea he was here until an hour ago when we met quite accidentally on the terrace i haven't seen him for a year we once lived in his parish near andover in hampshire he was about our only friend why did he spy on us i had no idea that he did it must have been only by chance she assured me from edmund shuttleworth you certainly have nothing to fear he and his wife are my best friends she is staying up at riva it seems and he is on his way to join her your father is absent i said abruptly yes she replied with slight hesitation he has gone away on business i don't expect he will be back till to-night and how long do you remain here who knows our movements are always so sudden and erratic we may leave to-night for the other end of europe or we may remain here for weeks yet father is so uncertain always but why are you so eager that i shall leave you i asked as we strolled together along the terrace you have admitted that you are in need of a friend and yet you will not allow me to approach you with the open hand of friendship because ah have i not already explained the reason why why i dare not allow you to show undue friendship towards me well tell me frankly i said who is this secret enemy of mine she was silent in that hesitation i suspected an intention to deceive is it against your own father that you are warning me i exclaimed in hesitation you fear him evidently and you urge me to leave here and return to england why should i not remain here in defiance in some cases defiance is distinctly injudicious she remarked it is so in this your only safety is in escape i can tell you no more these words of yours miss pennington are remarkably strange i said surely our position is most curious you are my friend and yet you concealed the identity of my enemy she only shrugged her shoulders without any reply falling from her lips will you not take my advice and get back to england at once she asked very seriously as she turned to me a few minutes later i have suggested this in your own interest but why should i go in fear of this unknown enemy i asked what harm have i done why should any one be my bitter enemy ah how do i know she cried in despair we all of us have enemies where we least suspect them sometimes the very friend we trust most implicitly reveals himself as our worst antagonist truly one should always pause and wonder deeply before making a friend you are perfectly right i remarked a fierce enemy is always better than a false friend yet i would dearly like to know what i have done to merit antagonism where has your father gone to brescia i believe to meet his friends who are they his business friends oh i only know them very slightly they are interested in mining properties 
They meet at intervals. The last time he met them was in Stockholm a month ago. This struck me as curious. Why should he meet his business friends so clandestinely? Why should they come at night in a car to crossroads? But I told her nothing of what I had witnessed. I decided to keep my knowledge to myself. The boat leaves at two o'clock, she said, after a pause, her hand upon her breast as though to stay the wild beating of her heart. Will you not take my advice and leave by that? Go to Milan and then straight on to England, she urged in deep earnestness, her big wide-open eyes fixed earnestly upon mine. No, Miss Pennington, I replied promptly. The fact is I do not feel disposed to leave here just at present. I prefer to remain and to take the risk, whatever it may be. But why? she cried, for we were standing at the end of the terrace and out of hearing. Because you are in need of a friend. Because you have admitted that you, too, are in peril. Therefore I have decided to remain near you. No, she cried breathlessly. Ah, you do not know the great risk you are running. You must go. Do go, Mr. Biddle. Go, for, for my sake. I shook my head. I have no fear of myself, I declared. I am anxious on your behalf. Have no thought of me, she cried. Leave and return to England. And see you no more, eh? If you will leave today, I, I will see you in England, perhaps. Perhaps, I cried. That is not a firm promise. Then if you really wish, she replied in earnestness, I will promise. I'll promise anything. I'll promise to see you in England when the danger has passed. If, if disaster has not already fallen upon me, she added in a hoarse whisper. But my place is here near you, I declared. To fly from danger would be cowardly. I cannot leave you. No, she urged, her pale face hard and anxious. Go, Mr. Biddulph, go and save yourself. Then, if you so desire, we shall meet again in secret, in England. And that is an actual promise, I asked, holding forth my hand. Yes, she answered, taking it eagerly. It is a real promise. Give me your address, and very soon I shall be in London to resume our acquaintanceship. But remember, not our friendship. That must never be, never. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com